maybe your Christmas, you won't be able to describe it as merry because <laughs> maybe there will be a lot of tears. But I hope in the midst of those tears, there will also be increased meaning, increased savoring of the gift of Jesus Christ who came into this world to defeat death. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with Nancy Guthrie. Today we'll be talking about Nancy's book, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts, to discuss the raw emotions people face as they experience grief, and to learn how to compassionately and confidently interact with those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to today's guest. Nancy Guthrie teaches the Bible to women at her church, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and at conferences worldwide. She and her husband, David, are the co-host of the Grief Share video series used in more than 10,000 churches nationwide, and also hosts respite retreats for couples who have experienced the death of a child. Nancy is also the host of Help Me Teach the Bible, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition. Hey there, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Christine. I'm glad to be with you and your listeners. Well, before we get started on our conversation about walking alongside those who are grieving, I wondered if you would share a little bit about your own personal journey through grief and why you wanted to write this book. Certainly. Uh, My husband, David, and I have a son, Matt, who is 29. Uh, We also had a daughter named Hope, who was born 21 years ago last Saturday. And when Hope was born, it was obvious there were problems, and and we found out on her second day of life that she had a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. We had never heard of that, and mm-hmm. you probably haven't either. Your listeners probably haven't. It, it just means that she was missing this tiny subcellular enzyme that you and I have in every cell that processes long chain fatty acids. And so we found out on her second day of life, she was missing these peroxisomes. And because of that, a lot of damage had already been done to all of her major organs, Mm -hmm. especially her liver and her kidneys and her brain. And the doctors told us that there was no treatment and no cure. And that most children with this syndrome live less than six months. Mm. So that was devastating. <laughs> you know, I I was so looking forward to having a daughter and taking her home to grow up with us and grow old with us. And so, but very quickly we found out that would not be the case. Instead, we'd be taking her home to usher her toward death. Right. Um, and, you know, when I think about Hope's life, it's, uh, it's such a mixture uh, the re- it, it, you know, of course, it was hard. It was sad. It was so. Um, it was challenging to know how to care for her. The syndrome is very rare, and it was hard to stay on top of just caring for her. Um, it was weird with people. Um, you know, some people just constantly wanted to be hopeful and suggest maybe this wasn't the right diagnosis or, you know, maybe that was just wrong and she was going to live. And that seemed like uh, a denial of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Others seem to think that if we had enough faith that um, we could overcome this, that if we just trusted God, that he would do a miracle and change that outcome. And so we often felt like some people interacted with us in such a way that they felt like our faith wasn't very strong because we weren't pouring ourselves into praying to God to ask him to do things differently. Though actually we felt like what faith would look like in this situation was to throw ourselves into trusting God with the length of hope's life. So 
there were all of those things, but then there was also just the joy of having her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, life made in the image of God is so valuable and having, there was something about her and knowing that her life would be short that added so much richness to our lives and added a lot of meaning and richness to our relationships with other people around us. I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have small talk with people much anymore because we were talking about things that really matter, like life and death and prayer and God's sovereignty and just those kinds of things. And so in many ways, her life was very, very rich and um, Hope was with us for 199 days. And then we said goodbye to her. And, you know, I suppose we began grieving really on that second day of her life when we found out her life would be short. And I think, honestly, Christine, in many ways, I kind of thought, okay, I'm getting a head start on this somehow. And so maybe after she dies, it's going to be easier for me than it might be for other people because I've got these months of her life to anticipate it. Hmm. Uh, But that just wasn't my experience. Um, After she died, it was just this huge hole, this huge empty place in our family and in our lives. And um, grief just came over me like such a, the way I often explain it is like a boulder on my chest. And it was felt so heavy and like I was always struggling for breath and tears were always very close to the surface and everywhere I went and with everyone I interacted, you know, it was just right there uh, for so long. Um, Now to have a child with this syndrome means that David and I must be carriers of the recessive gene trait for the syndrome. So we didn't know that when we had our son, Matt, who's healthy. Um, But then after we had hope, then we knew that whenever we have a child, since we're both carriers of this, that that child would have a 25% chance of having the fatal syndrome. And so after having hope, then we had a difficult decision to make about whether or not we would have more children. And uh, we decided to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And about a year and a half after Hope died, I discovered that that hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. I discovered I was pregnant. And, um, you know, at that point, in terms of grief, I felt like the grief was just beginning to lift a little bit. And like life was getting back to normal, at least just a little bit. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, you mean, God, you might be asking me to do this again? Um, I mean, I, you know, I went up to David's office that day when I discovered I was pregnant and I told him and we're sitting there with, you know, there's a part of us. It's like, well, maybe God, here's this thing we have ruled out and God has clearly overruled it. And maybe it's because he's going to give us another healthy child Mm -hmm. to raise and enjoy, which at that point, Christine, we really longed for. Our family just didn't feel complete. Um, But then there was this other part of, or maybe we're going to do that again. And that just was an overwhelming possibility to me. So we, we went through prenatal testing and had to wait a while to do that and then wait a while for the results and, Then the day came when the same geneticist who had diagnosed Hope called us and told us that we were going to have a son this time and that he would also have that fatal Zellweger syndrome. So that meant that that pregnancy was, you know, nine months almost spent anticipating having a child that we knew was going to have just a really short life and... There was a sweetness to that in some ways because we were able to just say, okay, now's when we, now's when we have him. And so we're just going to enjoy him. Um, and from day one, when he's born, it's just like, let's, let's just enjoy him for the limited time that God gives him. Um, 
but that was a weird time too. You know, people, I, I would run into people who knew we'd had a child who died and then I'm, you know, I'm obviously pregnant and they'd get very excited. Oh, this is so exciting. You're going to have another child. And I'm standing there and I have to decide whether or not I'm going to tell them, Hmm. well, this child is going to die too. Which made for a lot of awkward conversations. So our son, Gabriel, was born in July 2001, and he was affected with the syndrome, very similar to Hope. Um, Hope and Gabe couldn't see or hear. Uh, There was a lot of brain damage, so they couldn't really respond. Uh, Both Hope and Gabe developed seizures at six months, uh, and we had to try to medicate those and control those. Uh, They couldn't suck or swallow, so we fed them with a tube. And so, you know, there were a lot of those things about Hope and Gabe's life that were very, very similar. It was similar in that it was just a joy to have him. Um, But then it was also very similar that then once he was gone, you know, just you feel like you've been through this whirlwind of joy and intensity and making the most of every day. And then then it's over, you know, and then everything's quiet. Um, I, I drove a few hours yesterday to go to the funeral of my friend's dad. And so thinking today about what I know is the case for anyone who's experienced a loss is, you know, you've got all these people coming around you at the end of a loss. And then the day after it's just so quiet and so empty. And then, you know, so begins this period of time. People are asking about it for a little while. And then it just, if you're the grieving person, it just feels like the whole world moves on and they're kind of wanting you to get with it and move on. And, and the truth is, I think for most of it, it takes a little while just to even accept that that person's gone and then to begin dealing with the reality that they're not here. And, but it's at that point, it can feel like everybody around you is just expecting it to be all better. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I know this is just a really difficult conversation. I know there are people listening who are walking into the holiday season missing someone that was there last year. And so I know this is just a real hard conversation. I'm thankful for you for sharing some of those personal experiences. And I really resonated too in the book when you spoke about, you know, grief really acting like a hurdle in relationships, which is part of why trying to interact with people during a season of heartbreak and grief can feel so awkward sometimes. Can Mm -hmm. you explain what you mean by that observation? Yeah, I I remember... Just a few weeks before Hope died, I was up at my son's school for field day, and this woman who had lost a child said to me, you know, after my son Sadler died, it it wasn't so much what people said to me that was difficult. What was hard was the people who said nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And I discovered what she meant then a while later. For a lot of people, there's so much awkwardness about what to say, so much fear about the awkwardness of that conversation that they just don't say anything. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not pointing fingers too hard because I think I, I, I know I've done that. Mm. Um, but I, I, what I discovered in the midst of grief was that between pretty much everyone in my world, everyone that I know knows I had a child and the child died, it's like a hurdle goes up, just like, you know, a hurdle in a track meet. And the hurdle remains until the loss is acknowledged. Now, it doesn't have to be a big, huge acknowledgement or deep, sad conversation. It doesn't have to be that. It just has to be acknowledged because otherwise that that hurdle just remains. I, I, I remember also... You know, maybe six months after Hope died, I was in the carpool line 
and this friend of mine who had had a daughter who was born maybe six months before Hope, she walked up and knocked on the window of my car and rolled it down. And she said, Nancy, I just have to tell you that every time I see you, I don't know what to say to you because I feel guilty that my arms are full while yours are empty. And I said, well, I think you just said it, you know, and, and at that moment, the hurdle went down, Yeah. you know, it wasn't something brilliant. It wasn't, it was just, it was acknowledging the awkwardness even, right. uh, but just, you know, even if someone just comes, squeezes your hand and says, you know, I'm, I'm just so sorry. Uh, I, I heard about that your daughter's died and I'm sorry. I mean, that's really enough for a lot of people, uh, but to, to just ignore it, uh, you know, to ignore the loss, what it felt like to me was that what they really were saying something, but what they were saying was, um, your daughter was not worth, she, she didn't even merit a mention. Hmm. And I know that's not what it was. And especially now, um, you know, cause I, I, you know, I'm a lot further down the road and I feel like I have I feel like I've I've gained a lot of grace for people who struggle to know what to say. But I you know, I do think it's important for people to know that especially early on and if it's your first time, it's just mind-boggling and so hurtful that someone could just avoid you and not say anything. Um but you know, I I tell you the the moment I began to have grace was maybe a month or two after Hope died. A day came when David and I went to two funerals in one day. And one was uh, for a, another child who had had the same syndrome as Hope had, and then some friends who had a child who died at birth. And I'm standing in line at that first funeral that day, about to greet them, and all of a sudden I felt so panicked because I was thinking to myself, what am I going to say? And I thought to myself, of everybody in this room, I should know what to say. I have just been through this and I have had such high expectations for what people would say to me. And that moment and some others that followed just humbled me. I, I all of a sudden I was just like, wow, this is what people have felt around me. That sense of, wow, I'd like to say something that's helpful, meaningful, insightful, spiritual, uh, memorable. Um, and I don't know what that is. And I'm afraid I'm just going to come across like an idiot or say something that I'm going to walk away. And that person's going to think, wow, that was really unhelpful. And, um, so I, I have grown in grace <laughs> for people who struggle to know what to say. Well, you really shared a wealth of helpful and wise do's and don'ts in the book. And while we don't have time to discuss all of them, I would like for you to offer us some cautions about what not to say to someone who is walking through a season of mourning. And there are a few that you listed in the book that I think can especially be unhelpful, despite our best intentions, and sometimes even they can be really hurtful. And so I'm going to mm. take a moment. I want to mention one caution statement that you put in the book and then ask you okay. to expand on what you mean by that. And then we'll just go through a couple of those if okay, you don't great. mind. So you tell people to not compare. You say, don't compare. So what do you mean by that? I don't know why we instinctively do this. I should say why I instinctively do this. I mean, we all just do. We, uh, we hear about somebody's experience or loss and we, we begin saying, oh, well, that would be worse than this. Or we just want to compare and, and say, well, something is harder than something else. And you know what? It just doesn't matter. And the thing is, uh, my loss hurts me and your loss hurts you. Uh, and so comparison, what, what it tends to do when you try to compare someone's loss is, is, uh, it tends to diminish loss and it, it communicates your loss shouldn't hurt you so much. It shouldn't matter so much because this person has lost more or that would be harder. Hmm. Um, you know, a, just a general rule. If you want to have one and when you're trying to think about, should I say this? or should I not say this, is to ask yourself the question, is what I'm about to say or what I'm thinking I'm going to say, does it esteem their loss or does it diminish their loss? Mm. And our goal is always to 
esteem their loss, to to communicate something that says your loss matters. And I realize it hurts you rather than say something that diminishes it and says, mm, shouldn't hurt that much. Um, doesn't matter so much. And you also caution, don't be in a hurry. Well, I think sometimes I think we think that sadness is an enemy and must be gotten rid of as soon as possible at all costs that, that you see someone and you see they're sad and, and you know how the conversations go, you know, how so-and-so doing, Oh, she's so sad. She's not doing well. Well, when you lose someone who's valuable to you, who's me, who has meant so much to you, it makes sense that you'd be sad and it makes sense that you'd be sad for a while. It's, it speaks to the worth of that person and the place that that person had in your life. And so around grieving people, we don't, we don't want to be suggesting in the way that we converse with them that sadness is the enemy that must be gotten rid of at all costs and that they must move through it quickly. But instead, once again, esteem their loss and, 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 and give them permission in a sense to say, so what, one thing that I think that might mean, Christine, is like, we, we tend to approach someone saying, how are you? Mm -hmm. And that person gets the feeling like, well, they want to hear a good report from me that I'm better than I was last week or last month or whatever. And it, it puts the pressure on to make a judgment. Am I, am I doing this grief thing right? Is it going well? Uh, am I somehow sunk in a hole, whatever? I think a lot of times it can be better to say to a person, you hear yourself, you're about ready to say, how are you? And to instead ask the question, what is your grief like these days? Hmm. Because that says to the person, I expect you still would be grieving and I'm not trying to rush you through it, but I do want to, I, I do want you to know I care about it. And I, I want to know what it's like for you these days. So my thing, don't be in a hurry is to just give people time and space to be sad, to work through the loss. Now, at the same time, we hope that, th that a day is going to come and maybe we can gently point them toward a day when the sadness won't be so heavy in their lives, when the grief won't have as much power in their lives as it has right now today. But we don't have to hurry people toward that. We can, we can be patient with them and help them to be patient with themselves. I think another caution statement that you mentioned that I don't think we often consider is you write, don't ask potentially painful questions out of curiosity. And again, I don't think this is one we really think about all that often, but it's really super applicable to instances like suicide or yes. overdoses, um, any kind yes. of self-inflicted pains, but then too, miscarriages or stillbirths or things of that nature. And so I wonder, could you kind of explain what you mean by that one? Yes. Y you know, I, I catch myself in this a lot of times because as you may know, we hold weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we just had our 39th wow. respite retreat a couple of weekends ago. And so couples come from all over the country who have lost children from all different kinds of causes of death. Mm -hmm. A lot of times very tragic, uh, accidents, um, all kinds of things. And, you know, they send us something ahead of time. And sometimes they're very vague about what happened. Sometimes it's very detailed or, or they come. And as, as you mentioned, this is, I think, especially the case with a suicide, um, that they would be, they're, they're vague about how their child took their life. And so we might be tempted out of curiosity to want to understand more about the means of death or all different other things we might wonder about. But it, when we do that, we are, when we're on the outside, the death of someone can seem very one dimensional, mm -hmm. just that that person died. When you were there and maybe it was you who found that child's body or 
you know, that's filled with pictures mm-hmm. and that child's death, even if you weren't there, it's filled with imagination about maybe what those last moments were like or the desperation that led to that or the physical pain of it, the emotional pain of it. So to ask questions out of curiosity, it's like it's pushing that person back into the painful remembering and thinking about and them picturing some of those scenes. And honestly, that can be a pretty cruel thing to do. Yeah, it's just a great caution. I think, once again, people don't necessarily take it into consideration, but it is something to be mindful of. We've touched ever so briefly on some of the unhelpful things to avoid saying to someone who is mourning. I do want to spend a few moments to examine what's more helpful and compassionate in terms of our communication with grieving people. Of all the things we might ponder saying, you write that, believe it or not, one of the best things you can say is, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Can you explain what you mean by this? And is there anything else we might say to express our empathy and concern in a compassionate way? Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the best things to say because... There's something about that that communicates, I don't presume that any words I could say would make this okay. Uh, A lot of times when you're a grieving person, you sometimes feel like people come up with you to you with a lot of advice or some kind of insight. They're saying it to comfort you, but you can get the feeling, a, a sense of pressure, almost like, well... Like they want you to say, oh, oh, well, if that's true, I feel fine, you know, mm-hmm. and, and of course that's not the case. And so to come alongside someone and say, I don't know what to say, communicates, I don't presume that words could fix this. And it's also humble. It, it, it just says, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to take that place of giving you advice or, or making this okay. I, I just want you to know that I have a sense of maybe some of the sharing some of the questions you have in this moment and the sorrow that you have in this moment. And um, it's doing what I said earlier. I think it's it's elevating their loss as something that's not easily explainable. And so it can be a very kind thing to say. Um I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, we're so focused on what we want to say, but I think far better can be not putting so much energy into what we're going to say, but what we're going to ask or what we're going to invite them to say, um, you know, to, to, to like, as, as I'm thinking about my friend who, buried her dad yesterday. And I'm thinking about when I see her again, you know, when she gets home, you know, something I'm thinking I might say to her is, um, so throughout all of the funeral and all the family coming, what are some of the things that were said about your dad that just made you so happy? Mm. So inviting that person to talk about the person who died, um, or maybe I'll, I'll ask her something like, so are there certain, are there, are, you know, are there are certain times of the day or, you know, even as you're home now and you're thinking about that, are there certain things that are making you think about your dad? You know, just kind of that open-ended kind of question that invites them to talk about either that person or their own experience now of what their grief is like. It's, it's not demanding a report on it. Uh, but it's, it's just opening it up. It's, it's just giving it, it's opening it up to say, you know what, I'm some, I'm someone you can talk to about this and you don't have to report to me, but you're welcome to talk about what I know is pretty much the most important topic on your mind right now. And I know you, you're not wanting to fill up right now with a bunch of meaningless small talk and that this loss is so heavy on your heart and on your mind. So 
to be a good friend is to come up with some creative inviting ways to invite them to talk about it. Well, building on that, in the book, you mentioned that you surveyed people who lost someone that they loved. And they they noted two things in particular, which I thought were really insightful and helpful. Can you tell us what those two things were and why they seem to be so helpful to those who are walking through a season of grief? Yeah, what I heard most often was two things people wanted to hear from someone. First of all, they wanted to hear stories about the person who died. If you think about it, so often what happens when someone dies is everything becomes very general. Like, you know, he was a great guy. She was a good friend. Um, you know, those kinds of things that, you know, and they, they're just very general and you can't grab hold of those very easily. What's really meaningful though, is something specific, you know, it's something like, you know, my daughter was, driving home from school one day and she had a flat tire and your dad stopped on the side of the road, made sure she was safe and didn't leave until that tire was changed. You know, that that's so much more colorful and something to take hold of than just your dad was a great guy. Um, so to come up with really specific stories of memories that you can share with that person is very meaningful, but probably the number one thing people said that they want to hear is they want to hear that person's name. If you think about it, a lot of times after someone dies, we just start using pronouns for them. Um, your daughter, your son, your sister, your mom, your friend. When, um, and and there's something about that that just takes away some of the reality of them being a real person who is here. So to just keep saying that person's name in conversation. Um, so, you know, maybe let's, let's give this as an alternative to saying, how are you? So you see this woman, um, who is a widow and you say something like, you know, last week I drove by, you know, Sam's barbecue place and, you know, I use Joe and I used to love to go to that place. And now every time I drive by there, I say, wow, I wish Joe was here and we would stop and we would get some barbecue. And I wish I could do that with him. And I just want you to know, every time I drive by, I think of, I think of Joe. And so, you know, you've, that's kind of a mixture of those things, I suppose, right? You're, you're talking about, here's a memory. You're letting that person know you're not the only person who misses him. I do too. And you're saying his name, that he's a real person. Uh, that's just a great gift to give to people. I mean, I'm just sitting here trying not, not to cry, but I agree. And, you know, when my dad passed away, um, some of the most comforting things was to hear stories from his childhood or stories about, you know, before I was born and some of the, the antics he would do. And, you know, death has a way of, you know, it stops people's stories when mm. they pass. Mm-hmm. There's no more stories for them that we can see on this side of heaven. And so I think for the grieving person to be able to hear stories that they didn't know about, it's a little bit of a glimpse of, oh, there's still another story that they can tell that. I didn't particularly get to be involved in, but it's like they're still here in a way because there's still more story, even though we're not seeing it um, in the present day being lived out. So I think that is really powerful. And it can be really sweet to see another side of that person that we didn't witness, perhaps, you know, something they did we just didn't even know about. Well, you also highlight the importance of not making assumptions when it comes to caring for grieving people. Can you explain some of the assumptions we might make that actually keep us away from hurting people? And then on the flip side, share how we might intentionally and meaningfully be there for them? Yeah, I think one assumption we make, I think I've made this one, is you'll there'll be somebody that you kind of know and you, maybe you don't see yourself as being a close friend to them. And so we make the assumption, you know what, she has close friends, uh, or maybe she has a small group at church or something like that. And we say, I'm sure those people are really involved in her life and that she really doesn't want someone like me, that she doesn't really know that well, trying to be real close to her or something at this point. And I'm sure these other people are taking care of her. And so I won't impose myself 
But, you know, what's interesting, Christine, is oftentimes what happens is that, that the people close to you, sometimes either, either they get real fatigue, carrying fatigue, mm-hmm. that especially if it's been a long-term illness and they're, they're just tired and it's hard for them to keep walking with you through the grief. Sometimes it's because they have so much of their own grief and it's hard for them to continue to be supportive. Um, there's lots of reasons why in the midst of grief, maybe sometimes our close friends and families disappear or they aren't there for us in the way that we might wish they would be. So we, we should never assume that because we're not close or haven't been close in the past, that a grieving person isn't interested in us coming in close during this time. Um, I mentioned to you the retreats, our respite retreats we hold for grieving couples. And a lot of times in that circle throughout the weekend, we'll be talking and maybe someone will be talking about how certain friends they thought would be there. But then after the death, they just kind of disappeared. And then I'll ask the question, well, maybe I'll ask a question, you know, so, so how many of you experienced that? And, you know, most people raised their hands that there were certain people they thought would be there who disappeared. And then I asked the question, but let me ask you this, how many of you had people who you were not close friends with them before, but they showed up in the midst of your loss and they've now become good friends. And it's like they all, their faces brighten. And they raise their hands and it's like they realize, okay, yeah, maybe I, I lost some people through this, but I've gained some new friends. And that only happened because some people who weren't close, rather than assuming they don't want to be around me, um, pressed in. So, so that might be one assumption. I think another assumption is maybe it's a few months down the road and we see someone who we know had a loss and maybe he or she is smiling and we think to ourselves, well, I don't want to bring it up because it seems like he or she's having a good day today. And we think, I, I don't want to make that person sad by bringing it up. And so what it doesn't recognize is that grief, I think of it sometimes as like a a computer program that's running all the time in the background Mm -hmm. or like, you know how it is with your phone. Like you'll realize you had left all of these programs or web pages open that Mm -hmm. were been sucking your battery dry (laughs) and you didn't even realize they were on. And then you realize, Oh, I need to close all those. Right. So they were there. They were always running in the background. I think grief is like that. Uh, grief is always that program that's running in the background. And so when we're afraid to bring it up, thinking we're going to make them sad, the reality is here's this thing that's always running in the background. And when we bring it up and when we ask them about it, it's like it, it brings it to the forefront and it allows them to talk about it. And Maybe that will mean that they will shed tears. And in that moment, we think to ourselves, oh, no, I've blown it. Um, now I've made them sad. Here's the thing. You didn't make them sad. They were already sad. You just gave them the opportunity to release some of that sadness. And that's actually a great gift. So that might be a couple of things we should be careful about making assumptions. Well, that was all really good. Thank you for sharing those those highlights. Um, and I, again, I would just refer people back to getting a copy of the book to dive more deeply into this the topic. It's just a really profound wisdom that you've shared in the book, and I'm just so thankful for it. Now, this podcast interview thus far has been fairly practical in terms of the content we've been discussing, but we can't finish the conversation without bringing it back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this is the Hope and Help Project. So, so far, we've done a lot of help. And now I would like to interject some hope. And so in the book, you actually close out with an extensive chapter entitled, Let's Talk About Talking About Heaven. And I would really encourage listeners to equip themselves to navigate these types of conversations by getting the book. However, I think we would be safe in saying that grieving people need hope for the future. They need hope that wrong things will be made right. And they need hope that this broken life and these dying bones are not 
all there is. They need hope that the pains they're enduring aren't meaningless, they're not random, and most importantly, they're not going to last forever. It wasn't until I learned that Christ gave everything he had to be my living hope that that he knew what I was going through and he knew my mm-hmm. sorrow. But I finally found what I had been looking for all along, that he could fix it and that he has mm. fixed it and that he will fix mm-hmm. it. So can you talk about the hope of heaven that we have in Christ and how the hope affected the way that you walked through grief when you knew that you were bringing your baby's mm. hope and Gabriel home to die? Yeah. You know, I, can, I don't remember a lot about what my pastor said when we stood by Hope's grave. But I do remember one thing he said. He, he said... This is where we ask the question, is the gospel really true? And I just remember thinking, yes, that is the question in this moment. Is the gospel, which is that God has provided his son to live the life that you and I could not live and die in our place Uh, to take on the punishment that you and I rightly deserve for our sin against a holy God for the purpose that we could be cleansed and renewed and able to live forever in his presence. And, you know, if you face the grave and that's just the end, wow, that is hopeless. But when you know that your loved one is in Christ, then you can rest on some very solid things. And, you know, a lot of the world just leans on kind of spiritual sentimentality about death. And I'm not interested in that because that's really flimsy. And so, you know, for me, and and I would say, you know, as we interact with grieving people, What's very important is to not rest on just those, in some ways, silly, but very sentimental things about heaven, but what what scripture reveals about heaven. Now, even as I say that, you know, what's kind of hard is there's so much about what this life is with Christ after, um, after we die from this life. There's so much about it that... We don't know so many questions we have that don't get answered, but I think we need to lean heavy into what the scripture does reveal. And for me, you know, there there are several things. First of all, um, I think about what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. It talks about to be absent from the body at home with the Lord. And, you know, both sides of that truth are are very significant. We are absent from the body, that body that uh, wore out um, or just, you know, wasn't equipped with what it needed for this life or whatever. That that body, we, we are away from that body, so we don't experience the limitations of it, the pain of being in that body. But then that other half, that beautiful truth that we are at home with the Lord. And, you know, I think that helps us focus on heaven. So often people talk about heaven primarily in terms of seeing those we love who has gone, who have gone before us, um, almost as, as if that's, what's going to make heaven, heaven. And, you know, certainly that's going to be a wonderful thing about heaven. You know, I tell you sometimes, Christine, sometimes I, It's like I catch my breath realizing the day is going to come when I'm going to see hope and Gabriel again. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I mean, that's real. That's real. That day is really going to come. And and I, I look forward, I long for that day, but I think, you know, the, the, the day that I'm longing for is, you know, with all of my family and all of my larger family, which is the body of Christ, 
that we are together and we won't be so focused on each other. I think we're going to be focused on Christ. It is to be at home with the Lord. It is, it is Jesus that makes heaven heaven. Hmm. And so, you know, that, that's something is when we talk about the hope of heaven with people, I think we want to think about in terms of their, where they are now, that the essence of that joy and privilege is being with Christ. But I think another thing that we often miss is that we get so focused on where our loved one is now, what I'm going to call the intermediate state. And by that, I mean, during this period of time when the body is either reduced to ashes or maybe it's buried in the ground, because remember, it was away from the body. So the body is here. And then it is our soul, our spirit that goes to be to Christ. But that's not our ultimate hope. When if, if you spend much time, if you, if you spend a lot of time working through the scriptures, whenever it talks about hope, that hope is centered not mainly on going, our, our spirits going to heaven when we die, but instead it's focused on resurrection life. It's, it's focused on that day when Christ returns to this earth and all those who are in Christ come with him. And that is the grand resurrection today. That that's the day when he's going to call out to our bodies that are in the grave and he's going to resurrect those bodies. He's going to give us bodies that are fit for living on a resurrected earth. When he comes back, it's not just our bodies that are going to be given this resurrection newness. The whole creation, all of creation is going to be made new. And if we try to think about it, the best way I know how to think about it is think about the fact that there is only one person right now who has a glorious resurrection body. There's only one person who has resurrected from the dead and stayed alive, and that's Jesus Christ. So right now he has a resurrected human body in the presence of God, but the day is going to come when he's going to come back. And that's this is what the Bible constantly calls us to set our hope on, is this day of resurrection, so that we on that day we begin living body and soul in the presence of God in the new creation. And that is at the heart, is at the is the essence of the hope that the Bible sets out for us to take hold of. Nancy, we have just a few more minutes in our time together today. So I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who has recently lost a loved one. They're entering into the holiday season, and this is the first set of family celebrations where their loved one won't be there. What would you say to this grieving person mourning the loss of their loved one this holiday season to give them the comfort and courage they need to make it through the day? Well, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I would say set your family up for success <laughs> in this holiday season. You know, I talk to a lot of people who in some ways are dreading being with their family. Maybe it's a fear that everybody's going to avoid the elephant in the room, which really is the absence in the room of someone that you all love. Uh, and, and sometimes we just go into those situations and it's like we're mad before we even get there because we know nobody's going to bring it up or talk about it. And so I would say set your family up for success. Let them know that you want to talk about it and maybe even say, could there be a time around the tree or a time around the table that we share some memories and, and talk about that? So that, that would be a practical thing. But then on a, on a, on a spiritual level. I would say to you that this season is actually bringing to you an incredible opportunity to get at and take hold of and savor the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world like never before. Maybe always before, it's just been, you know, kind of the cultural holiday. But now you realize the significance of what it means that Jesus Christ entered into a world of death and that when he was born as a baby and he was laid in that manger, it was for the very purpose that the day would come when he would actually be nailed to a cross. 
And he would do that because he would do that to take the curse of death upon himself. The whole reason we celebrate the coming of Jesus and the whole purpose Jesus came into the world was we read about this in Hebrews, that he came to defeat death. He came to take away the fear of death. What we're celebrating is the very beginning stages of Jesus coming into the world to do what was necessary to one day rid this whole creation, this whole world of death, because the day is coming when we will never experience death again and death will not have the hold on the person you love or on you anymore. But instead, we will only experience ongoing, unending life. And the place that began was when Jesus entered into this world. So let that aspect fill you with a new sense of joy this holiday season. Maybe your Christmas, you won't be able to describe it as Mary, (laughs) because maybe there will be a lot of tears. But I hope in the midst of those tears, there will also be increased meaning, increased savoring of the gift of Jesus Christ who came into this world to defeat death. Well, amen, Nancy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to have such an important conversation with us today. I'm just so thankful, and I just hope that the listeners were blessed by the conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Christine. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Nancy's books and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.